Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Aikman Bros Podcast. I'm James Aikman. And I'm Andrew Aikman. So, like always, we ask you guys for questions and comments and feedback. And so, uh, I'm going to continue the process of going over a few questions. Uh, so, one is, will there be more in-depth experiences at the park? And so, we are in the process of talking through what it looks like to offer something we're still working on the name, but that would include basically everything you can do at the park. So the UTV right out of the drive-through, guided tour through part of the walkthrough, it would include all the different encounters that we currently offer and some that we are going to be offering in the future. And just as a way for people to kind of get the most their experience also, also in. include like the vet room that we do the vet work with with the drive through and then also the commissary the kitchen that we prep all of our food correct so you'd be animals. you'd be seeing areas in the park that usually aren't aren't open uh, to the public to experience yeah. most of the time uh, what else have we talked about doing well I think Potentially starting next year, like the museum experience, uh, we're going to kind of roll that into all of our adventures. So kind of one of those things to where people will kind of be able to come in and experience it. Because a lot of people don't realize, you know, you can kind of gift shop people kind of stress what the museum is. But until someone actually comes in here and walks in and sees the life-size animals close up and kind of interacts with them, they don't quite know what that experience is. So I think we're going to kind of incorporate the museum into the different adventures that we have to offer. So it's kind of one big kind of price that people come in. Since the museum is accessible from the walkthrough side, it kind of just makes sense that we kind of include that into the overall adventure side of things. So it's another thing coming down the pipeline. And then something we're kind of in the early stages of developing, kind of more so for kids, uh, we just kind of, piloted the program on this past Friday, but doing some kind of junior zookeeper program where kids can come in, they can help with different chores, cleaning, feeding, different things like that. Uh, so we're still talking through what that looks like, but we're hoping to be able to offer something like that in the future as well. And then I think, I mean, we touched a little bit on it last podcast, podcast four, but potentially new encounters coming, uh, talking about bringing kangaroo encounters back, doing some sort of ostrich encounter. We have Sonny and Cher that are kind of the greeters at the park when you walk into the walkthrough area that they are very curious in terms of, he takes like behind the scenes out, out there onto the deck. So trying to figure out a way to have a little more interaction with them, with the general public. Yeah. So every, Everyone behind the scenes that we take out there, they love them. People are dying laughing. People are think they're brave until they get up close to the ostrich and then they get scared and hesitate and panic. Uh, so everybody usually has a fun time with it. So I think we're going to try to figure out how to offer that to everyone as another encounter option. Uh, but with the ostriches, it's kind of a good tie into the next question. So what new attractions will be at the museum? Uh, what you see on the table here are 
going to be the four big pieces that would be coming in next. The date on that is still unclear, but these guys are compared to a six foot man. So that's what this scale represents. So that's how big they'd be. So I mentioned the ostrich. This one kind of hidden behind this guy, the Dianornis, kind of a 12 foot tall emu ostrich type of bird. And so I think that'll definitely get people's attention. But then you can see the other ones here. I don't know how much detail you want to go in on. Well, I think maybe on the very first podcast, we touched on a little bit about kind of our process when it comes to the large um, pieces that go from the museum. So these are the paint samples that we got for these four new pieces that um, haven't been started yet, but when that process starts, we'll kind of be that farther along in the, in the game, so to speak. Um, basically, everything will be ready to go, start printing out and start kind of putting them all together. So these are the actual... Um, paint samples. So these are, like you said, a one-tenth scale representation of what they will be like in real life. So we got the mega camelus right here. Um, the camels here at the park are probably one, if not the most popular animal that we have, especially Randy, the dromedary camel. So we knew we always wanted to kind of have a representation of that in the prehistoric realm. And it just so happened that there used to be a giant camel that roamed uh, North America. So right here in our backyard, this guy used to roam. So this one will definitely be kind of a, a showstopper piece. Um, basically it has a shoulder height of around 11, uh, 11 and a half feet. So especially kids will be able to kind of get all the way underneath them and not even be able to touch his belly to a certain extent. Uh, moving on kind of right behind John Hammond there, we got our Gigantopithecus. So uh, eight type of species that kind of resembles, resembles the Bigfoot, Sasquatch, kind of Yeti type of species. And that's kind of why we went, maybe not the most scientifically accurate pose, but we wanted to kind of just emphasize the sheer size of this guy. So he stands right around 10 feet tall. Um, he will be one that'll have a cool kind of background that we were able to put on the big garage door. That's actually how we get pieces in and out because they are so big, we had to have go a little, little bigger route than just a normal size door, get these guys in. So we, we were able to have uh, that door sponsored. So it has a nice kind of jungle like background on the background of it. So uh, real good one to get a picture taken once he arrives. And then finally, kind of more the Okapi giraffe type of family is the Civitherium. Um, just another very unique and kind of interesting type of animal that I guess that a lot of people don't even realize that used to used to roam here. So definitely, definitely big pieces. Definitely will kind of fill out this phase that we opened this past year at the museum. So we are excited to get those and kind of be able to show those guys off along with the other big pieces that we have. And if you have been to the museum and you've seen the Carnotaurus, that's our biggest piece. Some of these guys are actually going to be taller than what the Carnotaurus is even. So these are definitely some big pieces. Uh, it's possible kids might run in there and run right by the legs and not even realize that there's something above them, massive yeah. above them. So 
Well, these are also, so like the Carnotaurus, that was our first test in having a piece that was so big it needed to come in pieces. Um, so we did learn a lot from that, um, that piece in terms of maybe better ways to kind of do that in the future. So we're excited of these guys seeing how they come out and having that be the kind of the stepping stone to get to those eventually even larger pieces that we have kind of in mind down the road for future phases. So, um, Everything with the museum, once we get to kind of to the point that we're at now, uh, every new phase is almost kind of a little bit of a R&D type of um, scenario where, you know, we do the research and development and it's either something that we're going to continue on and continue to improve or it's something that we're going to have to tweak quite a bit. So with Carnotaurus, there was some some scenes that we didn't necessarily like when we first got it here. Uh, so we're hoping that these guys will be a little, little more seamless and maybe we can cut kind of the weight down a little bit on these guys. Cause Carnotaurus was a very, very heavy, beefy, beefy piece that uh, they went a little overboard with the internal structure. So I think they learned quite a bit in terms of making that one kind of be able to. So it was over 2000 pounds, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Closer probably to, once two legs, probably closer to 28, 3,000 pounds because um, the, the legs actually had to be filled with concrete just to kind of, again, support the overall weight of the body. And kind of since it is a, a two-legged animal as opposed to a four-legged animal, um, you have a lot more kind of, a lot more pressure on two, two points as opposed to four points that can kind of spread that weight out a little bit. So it was uh, an engineering challenge, but we're happy with that result, but we know that we can do uh, some improvements on that moving forward. So these guys are kind of that next next evolutionary stage of kind of getting the process down to where we feel comfortable when we start getting into 40 foot, 50 foot long pieces that are 18 feet tall type of thing. So, but yeah. So uh, yeah, the Carnotaurus, like I said, is our biggest piece and that it will look tiny compared to some of the future pieces that would be coming. So kind of trying to all use each phase between now and then to work out the kinks, reduce the weight and hide the seams as well as possible so we can do bigger pieces easier in the future. Yep. But, uh, next question, something a lot of people when I'm doing tours and I tell them, he lives in a two-story White House. I live in the big log cabin behind the hyenas. Everyone thinks, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And it is. So we, like my immediate thought is that I'm very blessed to be able to live on the site. Uh, a lot of cool things. We've had different animals in our house that we needed to help raise or get used to people. Uh, so uh, I think I was just thinking about this the other day in, in my house, over the last few years, uh, we've had owls, uh, we've had different ducks, we've had pheasants, we've had squirrels, we've had porcupines, kangaroos, wallabies, had a circle in there for a period of time. That might've been, might've been it, but, uh, at the park working, always something new that pops up every day living here is kind of the same way but we do live on site so we don't really have a break that would be the biggest 
pretty much every time. hour of the day we have been having to do something. So throughout the middle of the night, if uh, like when we're in storm season and we have a bad storm that kind of, if you're at home and it wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're like, wow, it's bad out. Well, we have that same feeling, but we actually have to go to the next step and make sure that a tree didn't fall on a fence line or something like that. So there's been numerous times where it's in the middle of the night, early morning that I'm out looking at fence lines, just kind of checking everything over. Um, fortunately, we haven't had other than a few kind of bigger limbs, no main issues with that. Uh, a lot of our fence lines are kind of not in direct pathways of, of trees or anything, but that is definitely one thing that has changed um, before living at a wildlife park till now. I mean, I always tell people, you about have to have someone on site 24 seven with a place like this because nothing is within the hours of 9 a.m. to 5, 8, 5 p.m. for sure. I mean, anything and everything would be possible. We were just talking last, last podcast that we had uh, a couple animals come in at 1130, 11.30 at night. So there are multiple things that kind of happen regardless of what time of day or night it is. And so it is a, a convenience factor for sure, being on site and being able to react as quickly as possible. So another thing would just be like, if we're closed, then it's not really that big of a deal, but on days that we're open and like, I want to go outside my backyard and play with my kids, there are cars driving kind of behind our backyard. So our backyard looks out into the drive-through. And so uh, whether we're in the backyard or we want to go into the front yard where some of the walkthrough people can see us, and his house is right next to the petting zoo. So there are some privacy issues and things that like we know if, if we want to go on a walk throughout the park, we have to do that before the park opens or after the park closes. Yeah. And so uh, just taking some adjustment to get used to what it is like to live on a public visited property. But yeah. I would say that both of us, we would much rather prefer to live on site than not. Well, yeah, on site. You, I, I can't envision a scenario unless I'm really old, retired, and not hardly doing anything at the park where I would be comfortable living off site after having the setup like we do. Just like I said, more so from a security standpoint and just uh, checking on animals and that sort of thing. It's well, I will say the the first year we we bought the property, I did not live out here, so I lived in Arthurstow at that time. That just happened to be first year we were working very long hours, starting at six in the morning, sometimes ending at seven or eight at night. So I would go home for lunch. Uh, Arthur is not that far away, about five miles. So we're talking seven to 10 minutes to get there, seven to 10 minutes to get back. But uh, I would see my son at lunch and that was sometimes, I'd get home when he was already in bed or I'd be waking up before he woke up. And that was something we knew that something had to change. And so moving out here was easily the best decision we've ever made because then I could pop in and see them or they could come out 
and CV, and then uh, it just made life a lot simpler as our next son was born. And then definitely, uh, once we adopted our three daughters, that I don't think we could have done that had I been living in Arthur. So living out here has been, like I said, the best decision that we've made, simplified things tremendously, and now my kids can come and see me at work or they'll bring me a snack in the afternoon and that could not be done if we did not live on the site. So well and probably just kind of going back to almost necessary to have someone living on site. So the the situation that is kind of I always go back to in that scenario, I don't know if you want me to tell this or not, but I'll try to describe it the best I can where it's not that crazy of a scenario. But so how our park is set up. So the drive-through has its fence and everything. And then the walk-through area where we live, the walking um, where the public goes, all of that has a perimeter fence in it. So before I get into this story, that perimeter fence was never compromised or anything like that. But it was an evening, it would have been, would have been last year, kind of maybe May, June type of uh, scenario. Early evening, I was at my house. It just so happened that my kitchen window kind of looks towards um, the east, so kind of into uh, where the hyenas are and kind of the inner portions of the walkthrough. And it was probably 6.30, um, starting to get dust, but still plenty of light out. And I just happened to look up out of my kitchen window and I see a water buffalo in my backyard walking by. So obviously that's not where the water buffalo should be by any means. Um, so I immediately ran out and found our other three water buffalo over by our big Christmas tree just that we light up during Pathway of the Lights, just absolutely going to town on it. So obviously something didn't happen that the water buffalo got into the, um, on the pathways of the walkthrough. So immediately I called him, um, and I went home. Sometimes it's hit or miss if he actually picks up his phone immediately, but this is one of those times where he did pick up his phone. I kind of told him what the situation was and that at the moment, at this time, we had no idea how they, how they actually got out or anything like this. So we were thinking worst case scenario, is there some sort of perimeter fence down or something like that that was able to get them into the walkthrough and are they the only animals in here? So that was kind of when we kind of corralled them to an area where we could confine them to, uh, for the moment, we kind of did a little investigating and found out. So the water buffalo are one of those animals that they do swim across the pond. So if you guys have ever come out, did some of those adventure trails out of the walkthrough, there's a meadow on the other side of the pond that for the most part is only accessible from swimming across the pond into this area. So the water buffalo do it and the elk do it um, pretty much on a regular basis during the summer months. So what had happened was, uh, for whatever reason, I'm pretty sure it was probably Charlie, the big male water buffalo. He, on that fence line, it started to push it because he was trying to get the grass on the other side and he actually pushed it so much that it stretched the fence to the point where it popped staples off of the posts that were securing the fence and loosening it up to where he could slip underneath underneath the fence. And then with the water buffalo, since they're such a tight-knit group, once one does it, it doesn't take long for all four of them to do it. So that was a positive thing. We found out where the 
uh, weak point was and the fact that no other animals could get to that because we went out and we confirmed that all the elk were still in the drive through so no issues with that. So that was kind of a little bit of a relief, but then the next more somewhat daunting task was how do you maneuver for water buffalo, get them past the drive, the walkthrough that has all this luscious grass and shrubs and everything. And it's just me and James. Um, so there's a couple, a couple tries of trying to get them uh, over to uh, kind of an alleyway where the wagons come and go out of the drive through. That was kind of our main goal to try to get them there. Well, I'll just interject real quick. So he said he called me, I answered. He called around 6.45ish. We just finished dinner and I saw him calling. It's very odd and he doesn't call me. So we live next to each other, we're brothers, but usually we just wait and talk at work or they'll text. So at that, it's not crazy for Andy to call me during the daytime or at nighttime if there's a storm. So it was very odd for him to be calling me at that time of night. And I answer the phone and I hear, James, water buffalo, out. And so well, at this point, I was chasing them to make sure because I didn't know if the gates on the walk. So then I told Kelsey, I've got to go. <laughs> and so got my shoes on, ran down to where he was. And so what he's talking about, herding them into this, the wagon uh, area where they were, there was a trail that kind of loops down and then it kind of uh, continues on around the North American Porcupine Dome but our service road cuts right through there. So we wanted to try to get them down the service road. So we put up some chains, hoping that maybe the chains would be enough. James put to, up chains, that's what I had to tell them about. To deter them. And they came down, they ran right through the chains. So then when they busted right through the chains, so then he's like, you stand there where the chains were, you stand there and you scare them that way, I'll go and scare them to you. And so he's, where they were, there's trees growing up that I can't see him. I can't see the water buffalo. I just him, hear him yelling at them. I hear them breaking through trees and I hear their hose running on the path. And I know they're about to come down the path. And they're, the natural flow, animals usually choose path of least resistance. So their natural flow is to come straight through where I am. And I have to, I have to figure out how to redirect them the opposite way. And I'm thinking they just, they just busted through chains. What the heck am I going to do? And so I just start jumping, doing jumping jacks, hooping and hollering before they even see me. So then thankfully, once they did see me, they started slowing down. They did go around the curve and we were able to get them back down the alleyway eventually. Yeah. I mean, I think we got every bit of, equipment that I could move to kind of create. Once we got past that point, we still had a wide open area by one of the barns that they could go left when we wanted them to go right. So I got tractors, trucks, anything I could find, the Viking and everything to kind of make a makeshift kind of uh, corral area. And luckily they, once we got to that point, it was pretty much, they had no, ch no ch uh, choice but to go where we wanted them to go. So we were able to get them into an alleyway and then back out in the drive through. And, so that was the scenario where if we had not been there, we wouldn't have worried. I wouldn't necessarily worry about them actually getting out of the property or anything like that, but the damage that they would have done to they would not have been found until the next morning. Yes. So the damage that they would have done to the trees, the grass, the pathways would have just been 
it would have been an absolute nightmare. And I just can't remember if that was a, if we were going to be open that next day or if we weren't going to be open that next day, but definitely that would have been just as a terrible start to a day. If it was a day that, you know, we got about two hours to get everything ready for the public. And we come so that would have been an example that we tell all of our new people and even our intern volunteers, you have to be flexible. So you could have a plan in place for that day and you come in in the morning, something's happened and throws your whole plan out the window. Uh, that coming into that would have been a day wrecker for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, in that regard, I think it was either year one or start of year two. In the wintertime, we had uh, all of our hay was put in the barn, and then we had basically where any of the animals that were coming in for the winter, they had um, kind of a big area in that same barn. Uh, there was a service store that we would go in and out of. Well, um, someone broke through that service store kind of the night before, and so when I walked in, I'm pretty sure it was a Sunday because I'm the only one that does things Sunday morning. Uh, when I walked in, it was just absolute uh, a mess. Everything that got into the hay that was neatly put up. Um, at this point, we were still using bagged feed and we hadn't been switched over to the bulk feed that's in the kind of a more protected container outside of um, animal space. So they had just completely ripped open I don't know how many bags of food and just scattered everywhere. So uh, fortunately, those sort of instances don't don't happen too often. But that was definitely uh, something I wasn't expecting walking into that morning, just like I wasn't expecting to see a water buffalo outside my kitchen window. I expect to see when uh, when it's a certain time of day, looking out my kitchen window, hyenas in their area, but not a 15, 2,000 pound water buffalo just kind of walking on by like it's no big deal. So, so that's just kind of the, the most frequent thing that kind of happened. And, um, that definitely the, the weak links that kind of, they were able to force their way through that fence line. It's kind of made us rethink some of those areas where we went back and reinforced everything just to make sure that a situation like that can't happen again. And, just a unique story that a lot of people don't don't have the kind of the means to live something like that. So, so bottom line is the pros outweigh the cons in regards to living at a wildlife park. Yes. So especially when you own that wildlife park. So, yes. uh, so kind of continuing on with our weekly animal spotlight. So today we're talking about our servals. We have two servals, Napoleon and Savannah. Uh, they came to us from a cattery down in Oklahoma where they were breeding servals with a domestic house cat to get a cat called a Savannah cat. So uh, that's where our female serval got her name. So she is 100% serval, but her name is Savannah. So. Savannahs would kind of be equivalent to our wolf dogs, part wild, part domestic. They were originally created to be a loophole so somebody could have a cat look like a serval that wasn't technically a serval. Uh, a new lady took that over. She was wanting to downsize, knew me, knew they would have a better home here. So I, I think that was in September of 16. That's when they came to the park. Yeah, I drove to Oklahoma. Uh, picked them up 
and brought them back. And so they had been in about 800 square feet and now they're in about 4,500 square feet. Yeah. Uh, kind of, uh, we get a ton of people that call them cheetahs in regards to misconceptions. I will describe them as a mini cheetah, but even after I tell them they're servals, people still call them cheetahs or why are your cheetahs so small? Uh, I'm actually shocked we haven't got anybody saying, how come you don't feed your cheetahs more or something like that because they're so small. They're not cheetahs. Uh, they weigh about 30 pounds. Small African cats, kind of like the bobcat of Africa. So they do have a shorter tail, just it is longer than a bobcat. And interesting thing about the servals, uh, they have the biggest ears, the longest body, and the longest legs proportionally out of any of the cat species. So they're well, they're also the most proficient hunters out of any of the cat species. In terms of usually when they go on the wild, when they go out to hunt something, they actually do come back with something. And that's partly because of what you just touched on, but also uh, from an agility standpoint and then like a leaping standpoint, they are pretty insane in terms of what they can do. So they can catch a bird out of the air about 10 feet up. Yeah. So definitely well equipped to hunt small, small game, which it's also people often ask us, does this animal make a good pet? Does that animal make a good pet? We tell people any animal that has wild in it does not make a good pet, but people wanting savannas, for example, because they want a circle and they can't have it in their state, they will get a savannah thinking it's cool to have a cat like that, thinking it's a bigger house cat. But when you have a cat that can jump up and hang from your ceiling fan, uh, just that ability is going to cause problems that most people don't think about. Uh, so, so we do not recommend servals as pets or even savannas as pets. Uh, I think I hear a lot of people say, oh, I, yeah, I've heard of savannas. They're really expensive. So I don't, I'm assuming we're talking about multiple thousands of dollars. So that's probably a deterrent for a lot of people to buy them. But if you're thinking about it, I would probably advise against it. Uh, but we well, another kind of misconception is uh, when people kind of read the facts of of them on kind of the informational boards. Uh, and this kind of goes more so not just with servals, but with a lot of our animals. Um, because of kind of the background of a lot of our animals, where they come from, not out in the wild or anything like that, their their personalities, their demeanors are quite a bit different than what their wild counterparts are, just simply the fact of they haven't, they never needed that ability. So Servals out of the wild, 100% vertical leap, 10 feet, no problem. I don't think I've ever seen Savannah jump more than two feet off the ground, if, if that. So it's uh, definitely kind of an instinctual thing. Napoleon's a little more, like he is, he's actually um, kind of displayed a more closely wild kind of characteristics than Savannah has, but... A lot of the animals, just because of how they were raised and with them being coming from a smaller kind of enclosure, it took them 
I would say a good three seasons to actually get comfortable enough to kind of explore their larger enclosure. Uh, we have a lot of different type of cropping that they have throughout that 4,500 square feet. Um, and definitely that first year, they pretty much stayed right close to the building that they go into for um, safety at nighttime. And I mean, even today, there are some days that they're camped out right by that building, but they definitely, they explore a little bit more and they're a little more comfortable with the larger area than what they were right from the get go. So again, not a normal kind of characteristic when you're talking about something that might've came like from the wild or, you know, that would absolutely love to have that additional space. These guys, um, just how they were raised are a little more timid in that regard. So. Uh, in regards to funny stories, nothing, nothing really stands out as truly funny. Uh, Napoleon, like I've pet his nose before, but that's about all he's ever let me do with Savannah though. Uh, some of our team has been able to go in there, sit down, she'll eventually start coming, brush up against arms or legs and then sometimes it's curled up in your lap yeah savannah is definitely the more uh i guess playful one the point kind of like skeeped himself but so then on in my morning tours like 10 o'clock 11 o'clock those tours sometimes people will see napoleon pacing back and forth along the section of fence and so there are birds that nest in the bushes on the other side of that fence. And so uh, I tell people he's trying to figure out how to get to those birds, which they laugh about, but he obviously can't get to them. But birds have flown in before. And so he has, he has gotten multiple birds. I think he got a squirrel once. Uh, there's probably other things that he's gotten that we don't even know about, but he yeah. is. He is a fairly decent hunter yeah. for the most part. Uh, but yeah, he's he's a lot more agile and fit than what Savannah is. Well, I don't really have any necessarily funny stories other than just the fact that it's hilarious for probably the first three years almost, that 4,500 square foot enclosure, we would hand push mow that every season. That's it took us three years to figure out a way to get a pushed lawnmower to where we could ride in there and make it a lot less of a chore of keep maintaining that enclosure. With uh, these guys, it's, you know, they're completely enclosed, so they have netting completely around them. Um, again, it goes back to their vertical leaping abilities. So when we initially built the enclosure, the only access point to get in and out of that enclosure was through their um, kind of their building, their night building that they go into. So we're talking just more or less a standard three foot wide door that uh, you have in your front, for your front door. So it was challenging to say the least in terms of when it was kind of the middle of mowing season, having to mow that every week, just how much time we wasted. And then when we figured out a way to put a, an exterior door gate on the enclosure that allowed us to get a riding lawnmower in there that cut that into half the time, if not more than that. It's just, it's a little depressing that we went three years with not doing it that way. So, joke's on us. Yeah. So, 
That's pretty much all there is on our service. So again, just want to keep encouraging you guys to throw out comments or questions or thoughts or things you'd like to see us talk about or discuss. We appreciate you tuning in and we will see you next time. Later.